Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with uh, Dr. Brian Gassman from the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Uh, Brian is a double-boarded plastic surgeon otolaryngologist. He's the surgical director and co-director for the Cleveland Clinic Melanoma and High-Risk Skin Cancer Program. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you, Tom. So it's uh, a little bit unusual to have a plastic surgeon who is so involved with melanoma. And uh, a lot of our listeners probably have come across your name in various JAD publications, but not everybody knows about you. You've published over 100 articles, many of them in melanoma and Merkel cell carcinoma. But um, tell our audience a little bit about how you got into this, this niche um, overlapping with surgical oncologists and dermatologists in your daily practice. Well, it's a great question. Uh, that started uh, some time ago. I actually had a background in tumor immune evasion. I started mainly in head and neck cancer, mucosal head and neck cancer, but I had an interest in melanoma all along. When a opportunity arose here at the Cleveland Clinic over 10 years ago to come and help lead and rebuild the surgical component of melanoma uh, and have a lab presence, I was very interested. And between that and ha- having a good startup package and so on, uh, and also seeing the potential for growth here, which was huge, uh, I jumped on it. And so what I found was that historically, plastic surgery had had a strong role in melanoma, at least clinically at the Cleveland Clinic, for years. And if you go around the United States, places like Yale, University of Michigan, Johns Hopkins, others, plastics is strongly, uh, or I should say the dominant uh, surgical field for melanoma care beyond dermatology. It is true uh, in the academic area, surgical oncology, which is a branch of general surgery, has dominated. What I've come to realize, especially living in Ohio, is that many of the referrals I get from patients who've been operated on but then recurred, uh, which is not a criticism of those who operate on them, it's just the realities people do recur, a lot of them came from other plastic surgeons. And, And what I've really come to realize is that in the community especially, Plastic surgeons are very commonly the surgeon for melanoma. And I think that a lot that has a lot to do with, A, there are more plastic surgeons than surgical oncology trained general surgeons, but also because there's a strong relationship between plastics and derm. We share aesthetics. We share Mohs reconstruction. Uh, we refer patients to you for resections, and you refer patients to us for reconstruction. And, you know, and that's basal cells and squamous cells. And then that, I think that easily makes it a one-stop shopping option from that standpoint. But additionally, plastic surgeons are trained to operate from the scalp to the feet. So if a patient comes in with a hand melanoma, a nose melanoma, scalp melanoma, most plastic surgeons feel comfortable handling that. And so 
in deference to say a lot of the general surgeons which may defer a hand case or a head neck case, we are very comfortable in those spaces. So I think ultimately people want to refer to people that make their lives easier and, and especially if they do a good job. And, and so I'm uh, a product of that, if you will, at the academic level. Throw in the fact that I do tumor immunology, I have interest in clinical, clinical trials, and I really thought, found an opening in academic melanoma surgery, and uh, it's been a, a good 10-year run since. And I think what makes you unique outside of taking care of um, melanoma patients is your sort of basic science, epidemiological, and more global interest in the disease. And so um, when I invited you for this podcast, I, I envisioned it as sort of picking up where dermatology, both in training and in most of our conferences, leaves off. And I, I want to share with our listeners here that this is a unique podcast because many of my guests are scattered all over the country. And this is the first time that um, we're actually in the same town. Brian is sitting across from me. I had envisioned that this would happen as a fireside chat, but it's actually pretty nice out. So there's no fire. <laughs> we're sitting at our dining room table here. I want to sort of start with your experience with um, staging of melanoma. Um, for, for our listeners, maybe an update on what's new in the most recent 8th edition that's now been implemented for a little over a year, starting in 2018, and your work with the um, NCCN guidelines. So wh what's, the, what's the biggest highlights in our, in our new or relatively new edition of the melanoma staging? Sure. Um, let me just backtrack just for a moment. Uh, you had mentioned about some of the work I did academically, uh, or the, the clinical papers I write. This will be pertinent to what we're going to discuss because whether I observe it just from the literature or through panels like NCCN or the SITSI um, Melanoma Task Force that I sit on, there are points where we call them data deserts. And I tend to focus on those areas for my research. I'll hear from leading experts, hey, we don't know this or we don't know this definitively. And then that's something I will... Uh, physically uh, put effort into. For example, uh, we'll talk in a second about mitotic rate and how that impacts uh, both the AJCC, AJCC staging system and the NCCN guidelines. So with that, the, the biggest changes in, let's start in the earlier stages in stage one, is clearly the fact that mitotic rate is no longer part of the staging system. The other is that we no longer round, or excuse me, we don't round to the second decimal uh, in staging. So uh, the staging is at the you know 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3 level. That's it. So the cutoff now is not 0.76; it's 0.8, and between 0.8 and one, including one, is a T1B. Um, or if you are less than 0.8 with ulceration, you are a T1B, which that, in a way that hadn't changed. Ulceration always bumps you from an A within the T class to a B. And, uh, but regardless of mitotic rate, which we know still can impact survival, it is no longer in the AJCC staging system. Why not? I think it, it has a lot to do with the fact that in the higher T levels, everybody is likely positive with mitosis. And so it's like asking how yellow is the sun? It's, you know, everything's yellow. Whereas in the earlier stages, it's certainly the thinner melanomas, it's so rare in some cases, let's say, how often do we see a 0.2 millimeter melanoma with mitoses that I think statistically it was hard for them to justify keeping it. Even though if you had a large enough database, you may find something 
uh, important. And that's actually one of the papers I wrote recently was the impact of mitotic rate on thin melanomas and sentinel node biopsies. Why hadn't that been done earlier? Because we use the National Cancer Database, which is the only one who provides that data, and the NCDB did not have that data captured until 2012. And then you had to wait three years because they won't give you that data until there's at least three-year minimum follow-up data to then ask the questions, for instance, what is the chance of having a positive sentinel node? And what we showed, and actually other people got on the same bandwagon and published similar papers as well, was that having any mitotic rate, now we weren't able to say one or two or three, but any, at least we can say with conviction, uh, increases your risk if you're less than one millimeter of having a positive cell node. Now you can cut that pie up even further, 0.8 to 1 and less than 0.8. Problem is the numbers, even with the NCB, start getting small. I think in years to come, as that data gets to be a larger N, uh, we'll be able to answer that question. So then moving on, uh, really the stage 2 uh, didn't change much, uh, with one exception, which I'll get to, where the bigger change that happened was in stage 3. So now there's a lot of different N classes. So to be a stage three, you have to have nodal or in-transit metastatic, uh, metastatic involvement or the combination of them. And in some cases, the number of nodes matters. So why is that important? Well, in the past, before the MSLT2, you would do a cell node biopsy and all you really cared about is getting the good positive, the good sentinel node. And if you had one node, the question was, yay or nay, was it positive or negative? And if it was positive, you go on to completion lymphadenectomy. And if there were other nodes, in theory, you would pick them up, although we could, that's an area of controversy as well. Today, with, with MSLT2, basically nullifying or reducing any enthusiasm to do completion lymphadenectomy, the only data we have about nodal involvement is usually from the sentinel node. So I'm very interested, and that's where a lot of my research is, in, in improving the quality and actually finding maybe perhaps more nodes that we would have said are below our, our threshold because we need that nodal information if you, to properly stage patients. Why does that matter? Because a lot of the therapies that are curing stage 3 patients, which didn't in the past, are generally given to stage 3Bs and higher. And if you don't have enough nodes that are positive, you may be a 3A by accident, if you will, because you're using sort of the old concepts, mm -hmm. and you, that patient may not go on to adjuvant therapy, and then, of course, they become stage four. So, so that's, in, you know, there's a lot of staging issues there. Uh, there is now a stage 3D, which is sort of a rare, hard to get to. You need to have in-transit metastasis and multiple positive sentinel nodes. Uh, my point is, is that the stage three system has gotten very complex and convoluted, and even I myself, who thinks I memorized it, I have to have a chart on the wall to really make sure I, I don't make a mistake once in a while. The yeah. interesting yeah. thing when we talk about that stage three, which I've heard you explain a number of times, and yeah. so I, I like your your approach to it, is really the concept of stage migration and, and what exactly happened yeah. to, to have improved staging be a beneficial thing for, for patients across the board, if you will. Right, so I was gonna, that was going to get to back to stage two. So whereas stage two actually didn't change, the data originally that defined stage one, two, and three was based on uh, a prospectively held uh, data set uh, from major institutions where less than half the patients we would t typically give a cell no biopsy did not get one. Fast forward to the most recent staging, and they 
that data does not include those types of patients anymore. So if you're a stage 2C or 2B, you have very thick melanoma, likely ulceration, although you could be a T4A to be a 2B, uh, and you have to have a sentinel node that was attempted to have been done and it was negative. And so what we saw then is the power of cell node biopsy. Although some will argue that, well, no one's ever shown that cell node biopsy improves survival, here in this case, at least it does really affect prognosis because now stage, especially 2B and 2C, but to some degree 2A and even 1B, their survival, according to the most recent data, is much improved. So you would think that a horrible, you know, eight millimeter ulcerated melanoma with a negative cell node, that should be terrible. But actually, although they're, you know, they're getting lumped in with all the other T4Bs, becoming a stage 2C, the 2C has improved by 10 or 15% over 10 years in terms of their 10-year survival. Why? Because the really bad ones that should have been stage 3 are now stage 3. But as we say, there's this you know, famous effect, uh, you know, back, I mentioned this many times, where people left Oklahoma and the Okies were not happy about it, but they felt they were sort of the less intelligent Okies to go to the gold rush in California where the people in California were even more... Uh, I hate to use the word uh, stupid, but that's sort of the term they would use. And so, but still the less smart Okies that left were smarter than the California uh, population, thus making both Oklahoma and California smarter, if you will. This same thing is happening here. So the, just as the, the bad stage twos now are stage threes, evidently they weren't as bad stage threes in general. And so both stage twos and stage threes have gotten better with the exception of this new stage 3D, which again, it's hard to get to, but if you get it, it's basically the same prognosis as stage four. And so it's interesting um, that up until this eighth edition, the staging was largely based on that cohort that originated, originated in, in the 1970s. And just now with this eighth edition, we have a cohort that's based on more modern data set where the majority of patients can be assumed to have had a sentinel lymph node biopsy more than assumed i actually spoke with jeff gershenwald who's the primary author on the ajcc and he told me that of the stage twos i think less than three percent did not have a cell no biopsy versus over 50 percent so um thank you for that update on on the melanoma ajcc staging now the the national comprehensive cancer network uh cutaneous melanoma guidelines give us a little bit more guidance in how the the staging translate into what we should actually be doing with the patient. And uh, you've been involved with, with that group. And um, at least in, in my world, the most recent document I have is, is from April of 2019 being the update to the melanoma guidelines. Let's talk about that before we get to some of the nitty gritty of, of immunotherapy and, and adjuvant therapy. Sure. So for stage one, you know, clearly, thin melanomas need a wide excision. The controversy is when to do a cell no biopsy. There was a lot of back and forth in the group. What should upregulate you, if you will, to have a sentinel node? I think any T1B is a strong consider at this point. The question, though, is mitotic rate. So uh, some felt that because AGCC had removed it, we shouldn't. Then there were these papers, like the one we published. The consensus or compromise was the fact that we should have at least two two mito mitoses to consider cell node. 
Now, remember, this is a guideline. It's not, you must do this, you must do that. Why two? Because when you have less than two, sometimes you may have five uh, sections of a tumor and see it only in one, and that is more than zero, uh, even though they used to call it a fraction. To have two usually means there's probably one or two in every section. Maybe there's three over here and one over there, and that's pretty significant. There's not great data, though, that really two versus anything more than zero makes a difference. It was just a way to feel a little bit more confident about the choice that, that was made. I think there's still, you know, if people want to cons at least discuss it with patients, I think it's very reasonable to do so. Remember, ulceration at any thickness uh, is going to up stage use to a, a, a B, so a T1B, for instance. The other thing I would say is that we looked at our data for thinner melanomas, and I believe it was around 65% of them had a positive deep margin because of the shave biopsy technique that's done uh, you know, many offices, whether it's family practice, a PA, or a dermatologist themselves. And so there's that level of ambiguity now in, into this. So is it really a moot point when you throw in, I got one mitosis on one slide and it was 0.4, but there was a positive deep margin. All that ambiguity and concern and maybe the patient concern may lead to me to want to do a cell no biopsy. And so the guidelines are still open enough not to say that's a bad idea. It's just not as recommended as it once was. And it certainly is, at least uh, in my understanding of literature, the, the classic data desert that you were talking about. It's really hard to know what the, the risk of that transected melanoma is because we encounter the melanoma where there's then residual disease. On the re-excision, we encounter the melanoma where we don't have that. So... Uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how data pans out to, to get us more uh, information on transected melanomas. And so be, beyond the, the sort of challenges of thin melanoma and uh, transected melanomas, what has the NCCN uh, recommended for, for stages or, or melanomas beyond that? So it really started on the opposite side. So Obviously, we're all excited, you know, there was Nobel Prizes and so on about what immunotherapy, especially, but also to a degree, targeted therapy has done for stage four melanoma. So that creeped into three major trials that have been published for stage three melanoma. The Combiad, which was, which was a targeted therapy, Checkmate 238, which was uh, BMS's trial, uh, and Kino 54, which is Merck's trial. And each were a little bit different. Obviously, two were immunotherapy, one was targeted therapy, but the Merck trial allowed stage 3A through 3C. Remember, there was no 3D back then. Whereas the uh, the BMS trial started with 3B up to resected, uh, resectable force. So it's a little, there, there is no perfect, uh, you know, parallel trials. And from that, though, the FDA approved all stage threes, and of course, stage fours, or even if it was resected, were already approved earlier. Uh, so that was great. And then the approval wasn't just for immunotherapy, but also uh, targeted therapy. And the targeted therapy, of course, is only good for patients who have a BRAF mutation, which on average is about 45% of patients, right? But, you know, but we also know that there's certain people that tend to have more of them, you know, so um, the you know, the, the redheads and the multiple mole patients and so on. Uh, but then if you have an acromelanoma, it's very unlikely, for instance. So an acromelanoma really doesn't have that as an option usually. 
And then as you get into stage two, there's been a lot of interest. Well, we're doing so well with immunotherapy and especially the, those that target PD-1. Yes, they can have major life-threatening side effects, but that's in less than 10% of patients. And for that 90% basically relatively safety profile, why can't we bring it to stage two? So there's a lot of interest in that. So right now, there are two trials that are open for stage 2B and 2C. I'm involved in both of them, actually. One of them I'm more involved with than the other. But the Merck 716 trial uh, and the uh, and the BMS 76K trial, they're very similar. Both of them are using their anti-PD-1 agents. Because their agents are given one every three weeks, one every four weeks, you could look at it as a positive or negative. Uh, the, the other is that one of them is a two-to-one. So patients come in, and if they're really skeptical, oh, I'm not sure I want this, maybe a, they have a 50-50 chance at, at maybe a better draw for them. But a lot of people want the drug because they, they hear about it on TV and so on. And the other trial is a two-to-one, so they have a two-thirds chance of getting the therapy. And then there's a lot of other smaller things out there, less potent but less side-effect-inducing drugs caught, uh, in the stage two space. Uh, there's going to be a lot of... Uh, smaller trials, more in stage three than stage two, but they're really looking at neoadjuvant therapy. So what is that? So a patient comes in, and before all you have is a biopsy, before you do any surgery, you're going to give them ahead of surgery some type of therapy. That's neoadjuvant versus giving to them after surgery, which is adjuvant. So that what's been approved is adjuvant. When I say neoadjuvant, the reality is it's really neoadjuvant plus adjuvant. So they have a neoadjuvant component, surgery, and then adjuvant component. And that's really going to change the landscape of everything we do. It's going to delay surgery, but it's going to have a lot of ramifications. First of all, right now, we're learning a lot about what these therapies do because now we're resecting them shortly into their course of therapy, and we get to look at what the therapy does or doesn't do. But also, they've actually shown now, and this was presented recently, that the more pathologic shrinking you have from these therapies, you can correlate that to survival patients. So that's another reason, especially in you know bulkier disease patients, why we should have a new adjuvant component. So that's sort of where we're at right now um, in melanoma care beyond stage one. For those um, of my colleagues who may not encounter the advanced melanoma as regularly because maybe they don't have the luxury mm-hmm. of having a, a multidisciplinary tumor board, let's take a step back and um, sort of just go through the, the timeline, realizing that historically when we've talked about both adjuvant therapy for completely resected but high-risk melanoma mm-hmm. and treatment for metastatic disease, we, we were sort of in a, in a desert. We had no good treatments, right? We had interferon, wasn't really that well tolerated, wasn't working that well. We had biochemotherapy where we're combining interferon with IL-2 and, and traditional uh, chemotherapy, which also wasn't working that well. But let's talk about the timeline of, of getting these agents approved. So starting with our BRAF inhibitors, our MEK inhibitors, and then the, the advent of immunotherapy with ipilimumab. Um, that was a really exciting time to be involved in, in trials, and, and you were. So sort of walk me through what that was like having treated patients historically who had very little options with advanced disease. So, so when I got to the Cleveland Clinic in 2010, there, there was the ipilimumab trial out there. That's that was really what was out there. The BRF mech, or certainly BRF inhibitor trials were starting to brew, but 
nothing really going on at that time. And then uh, what had happened was there had been publications in the phase one level from the NCI with Ipilip were, you know, CTLA-4 inhibitor, which was quite positive, which led to the, the big trial that was ultimately published in New England Journal of Medicine. Steve Hody is the first author of that trial. That was in 2011. And they didn't even know it would work. They were actually looking at it versus vaccines and combining it with vaccines. And what they found was that for the first time ever in a phase three randomized trial, patients did better at one year than they did with, uh, you know, the chemotherapies that were available, which were really basically ineffectual. And this was for metastatic. This is all for stage four. What they later learned, similar to IL-2, where there's a small percentage of patients that do well, but if you get on that, what we call tail of curve, so imagine a curve looks like an L, right? So the, the up and down part of the L, unfortunately, is where people are dying, 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 and then all of a sudden, the transverse part of the L is where it's, it tails off, if you will. That tail from, the, from zero was like 5%. So if you were that lucky 5%, and you survived all the IL-2 side effects, you had a good shot at living a long life. So what happened with ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor, is it, it, we didn't necessarily see the disease gone completely, but at, finally at one year and then two years, about 20 to 25%, we're hitting that transverse part of that L, that curve, the tail of the curve. And that's actually gone out many, many years. And it looks like by itself as a single agent, it's about a 20 to 25, you know, 25% cure rate, even if you see disease on the CAT scan. And why that's important is because uh, that's gotten even a little bit better because we're better giving the drug, managing its side effects and so on. Um, that predated the BRAF inhibitor. So, the B, so there was a company called Plexicon, which re- realized that uh, 40-something percent of melanomas have a BRF mutation, and I think it's 20% in colon cancer and thyroid cancer and so on, and it formed sort of a pocket in, inside the molecule, and they created a drug that fit into that pocket so the, so the molecule couldn't be constitutively active in causing the cells to proliferate, and it was quite effective. Uh, the problem with uh, the first drug, which eventually became... Uh, um, uh, um, Genentech's drug, they bought it from Plexicon, was it had a lot of side effects. Side effects including inducing other skin cancers like melanoma and cytos, even T1A melanomas, which is you think is uh, should not happen, but it does. And I think it's a little bit what the difference between primary melanoma and mastatic melanoma. Ultimately, that did get approved. And then later, uh, Novartis came up with adding an inhibitor, which they already made, that's a little bit downstream of BRAF. And the combination not only was more potent, lasted longer, but got rid of some of those side effects. So that was your MEK inhibitor. That was your MEK inhibitor, right. Decreasing formation of keratinoid canthomas, relative squames to some Exactly. Now, since then, two other companies got into the mix. So you have the, uh, so Genentech, Roche then came up with their combination of BRAF mechanibitor and then more recently Array. And again, it's hard to know which one's better. The one thing we do know is each of these three combinations have slightly different side effects. 
So someone could have, like, as a dermatologist, you'd be concerned about significant photophobia. One of them has very significant fevers, for instance, and so on. So you potentially could switch patients just based on side effects as opposed to efficacy. But I believe the MECBRAF inhibitor was approved either 2012 or 2013. The not long after um, ipilimumab was approved, the uh, Genentech BRAF inhibitor was approved as well. So we were really cooking at that time. But the big thing happened was there was a phase one trial looking at what we now call nivolumab at a different name back then, back in JCO. I think that was 2012 out of Hopkins. That eventually led to a phase three trial um, looking at nivolumab. And then they, right away, the Checkmate 67 trial, which was nivolumab versus ipilimumab. Remember, BMS made ipilimumab. They made nivolumab, and they, they made the combination, obviously. So that trial, which we still use to this day as the most important trial, Checkmate 067 is nivolumab versus ipilimumab, nivolumab plus ipilimumab versus ipilimumab. And there, there, there isn't nivolumab versus nivolumab plus ipilimumab, but we extrapolate. But what's really cool is every year that trial gets more mature, it gets published. So just this year, New England Journal of Medicine, five-year data. If you get nivolumab, ipilimumab, around 50% of patients are alive at, at five years. So talk about a tail of the curve. You don't get that with the BRAF mechanisms. What's the difference in adverse events, especially immune-mediated ones, if you have combination PD-1 inhibitor with ipilimumab versus PD-1 inhibitor monotherapy? Do we see more of the thyroiditis, colitis, etc.? So ipilimumab is your major inducer of your side effects. There's no question about that. It really varies from trial to trial, but you can argue it's somewhere between 45 and 65% of patients are going to have what we call an adverse event three or four, significant enough to have to stop therapy if you get ipilimumab plus nivolumab. If you get nivolumab alone, as I said earlier, it's somewhere between 5 and 10%. Uh, and if you get ipilimumab, it's probably 10% less than the combination of ipilimumab plus nivolumab. So without the ipilimumab, uh, you are getting a lot less side effects you're also reducing probably a similar rate of efficacy, though. So you're getting most of your efficacy with nivolumab, but you're still not getting that 50% alive at five years. I think it's probably around 38 to 40% are alive at, at five years versus 50%. That's significant. I and mean, this is stage four. This is all stage four, unresectable, lung mets, brain mets. Well, they didn't include brain mets at the time, but we now know it works in, in uh, non-symptomatic brain metastasis. Uh, so my point is, is that uh, the the combination is still powerful. I still see patients that very little side effects, even with the combination. And is the combination now first line, or is it um, single agent PD one inhibitor, or um, is that too complex and patient specific to, to make a generalizable statement? Yeah, I mean, you know, we like to think that medicine has an art to it, you know, and even the NCCN guidelines, it's so fluid and there's a lot of like up to you, up to you type of thing. And again, this is done by oncologists. I think you have to look at your patient. If your patient is, you know, stage four, but it's minimal disease and they're relatively healthy and want to continue working, I think an anti-PD-1 agent is probably what you're going to get up front. We tend to use, obviously, if you're BRAF wild type, you, have, you don't have that those BRAF options. If someone has fast accruing cancer, especially if they're like they're, they're bedridden or even worse, a lot of times we will go to a BRAF mechanism because it has an incredible kick. Actually, there's been published what's called the Lazarus effect. 
And I've seen it firsthand. Patients are riddled with cancer and literally can walk out of the hospital and drive themselves home. I had a patient who had metastasis on both sides of his trachea. He was trached on the ventilator and he eventually drove himself home. Now he recurred. That's the problem with these is that even if there's just one cell, they can form resistance uh, and then grow back. But uh, so, but right now there is a trial called ECAC-6134, which is trying to answer the question, if a patient comes in with stage four unresectable melanoma, which one should be given first in the BRF positive patient? Uh, but ultimately, you know, you look at how sick your patient is, how aggressive the cancer is, and then you try to fight fire with fire. So if it's a relatively aggressive cancer, you're going to probably give them uh, um, ipilimumab, pembrolizumab, or excuse me, ipilimumab, nivolumab. I will add one more thing, and that is you also have to look at the frailty of your patient as well. If you're you know, talking about a 95-year-old patient, a lot there are some people who argue you should give them everything because their immune systems are so weak being 95, and they probably won't have as many side effects. On the other hand, they can't handle the side effects as well as a 40-year-old can. So these are all things that you have to do to tailor the therapy. When you look at that from a um, more objective standpoint, I guess, and, and you're deciding on these drugs, how important is uh, PD-1 ligand expression to determine who's going to have a response to, to a PD-1 inhibitor? So that's a, it's an important question. Uh, the, the short answer is not so much right now in melanoma. It is in other cancer types like lung, uh, I think bladder as well. The issue is that I, part of the issue really is that many melanomas have PDL1 expression that would meet the criteria that they were trying to use as a cutoff, whether to add ipilimumab or not. But basically, what we know is that cold tumors, which are tumors that don't have a lot of immune cells, don't do as well as immunotherapy, with immunotherapy as is hot tumors, which have a lot of immune infiltrating cells and a biomarker of being a hot tumor was PDL1 expression. And so in the, I mentioned that first paper from Johns Hopkins and they looked at this and actually it was a dermatologist who got very involved uh, at Hopkins. What they found was that PDL1 positive patients did better than the PDL1 negative patients. But in the end, they were seeing patients with low PDL1 still doing well. And probably it does make a slight difference but not enough to overcome all the other issues related to the patient. And so right now the FDA does not mandate getting a PD-L1 test. And so most of us don't do it anymore. Let's switch uh, gears just a little bit because I know you've also been involved with um, TVEC. TVEC is our oncolytic herpes virus, um, which we're using for locally advanced in transit metastasis disease, where are you using it in your practice and what has it done for you? Well, that's been a very big part of our practice. Uh, we are a very large user of TVEC. Uh, as you mentioned, it is an attenuated herpes virus. Uh, viruses, when they go into cells, they uh, multiply and they sort of pop the cell and that's where the word lytic comes from. So oncocancer lytic. And so they have a uh, predilection for cancer cells versus normal cells. And there is some added uh, or modified guts to the uh, the to TVAC versus a regular herpes virus. We've not seen any herpetic outbreaks, by the way, in our patients, even in immunosuppressed patients. Um, but we usually use it for certainly unresectable cancers, patients 
who are maybe don't want resection but have really significant disease. I had a patient, for instance, her entire scalp was involved. Technically, I could have resected it. Uh, but what we're doing now is we're combining it with the other immunotherapies. And we do that regardless of insurance will cover it because we've had really great data on that. There's been the phase one trial. Well, the phase three data with ipilimumab has been well-established and, and published. That's TVEC plus ipilimumab. Plus ipilimumab. In... In these unresectable stage 3C or 4 patients that are injectable. Now, by injectable, generally we're talking about things you can feel, see, or maybe get to with an ultrasound. So it's mainly nodal basins or skin, extremities, scalp, etc. We tend to try to combine it with an anti-PD-1 agent. Not just because of the safety of the PD-1 agent over ipilimumab, but because of the efficacy. And we actually looked at our data early on. We had we published it, and we had excellent results. Uh, of ten, Our first 10 patients, just 10 patients, regardless of, you know, learning curve or, you know, bad or good outcome, of them, all of them having sort of unresectable disease, 7 out of 10 had complete response. I mean, all the disease that we saw just was completely melted away. And that included patients who had disease elsewhere in the body where we didn't inject. Now, could we argue that, could we argue that that happened because of the PD-1 therapy? Potentially, but our overall response rates were well above what we would have expected with either, either one alone. So we tend to do that mainly in combination. Uh, so it was a TVEC, which sort of primes the immune system and may turn the immune system, in, or excuse me, the tumor microenvironment into a hot tumor microenvironment. You add in the immune-stimulating drugs that we have, and the hope is that we're training the immune system to go after melanoma all over their body. That's, that's fascinating um, science, and hopefully more to come from, from that avenue. Any other words on immunotherapy before I want to really tease out a little bit more your approach to sentinel node biopsy, completion lymphadenectomy, mm-hmm. things like that? Well, there's so many things coming down the pike. I mean, so ipilimumab and um, CTLA-4 inhibitors and PD-1 inhibitors are targeting what we call checkpoints. So whereas in the past we were giving drugs that just, if you will, turn the volume up on the immune system, what we realize now are there are things that sort of keep the immune system at bay. And so a negative times a negative, blocking these negatives equals a positive. And we can increase the immune system more, not just effectively, but also controlled so that we don't have all the same side effects. Why is that important? Because there are many more of these that exist within the immune system, and there's so many combination trials. The joke is we have more trials than patients, which may not be a joke, actually. That's on the just giving antibody-based drugs. And then there are cytokines that are not as potent as, let's say, IL-2, and have very specific effects on the immune system. Not enough by themselves to be effective against melanoma, but maybe in combination with a checkpoint. Uh, in fact, I'm running a trial where we're looking at interleukin-7 instead of IL-2. Relatively safe interleukin. Uh, it does very specific positive things. Probably by itself would never cure the cancer, but in combination with we're using a PDL one agent, whereas PD-1 is like, a, is like the lock uh, or a receptor, PDL one is like the key or a ligand. You block either one, you get sort of the same effects. Why does that matter? Uh, because... There, there's a whole host of these interleukins. So you have all of those that you're combining with. Then there's all the metabolics on the immune system. Things, so for instance, tumors produce something called IDO. IDO blocks metabolism of the immune system. Uh, 
Unfortunately, the trial com- inhibiting IDO plus nivolumab was a negative trial. It was actually one of the first major hits to immunotherapy ever in you know string of successes. But they're going back to that. And then on top of that, there's something called cellular therapy, where we're taking immune cells out of patients, modifying them, and giving them back to patients. There's so many uh, permutations of everything I just mentioned. And for every one I mentioned, there's almost 10 companies opening up. So it's not just academia that's pushing this. It's also uh, industry as well. So that's basically where we're at. And then, there, you know, I think targeted therapy, we're adding that targeted therapy to immunotherapy is a hot topic as well. And I already mentioned neoadjuvant, when to give it, how long to give it. Should we be giving it for two years, one year, six months? Are there biomarkers when to stop, not just imaging? Uh, these are all areas of hot research right now, high intense research. So I, I imagine when we talk about lymph nodes and, and um, evaluation of nodes and, and management of nodes, the conversation we have today, fall of 2019, is a different one than we have uh, a number of, of years ago. So how has the practice evolved? And um, I think we can agree on, on sentinel lymph node biopsy as a prognostic test. And we're not going to talk about alternatives when it comes to gene expression profiling, but do you consider any subset of patients to, to be more likely to also get a therapeutic benefit from, from sentinel lymph node biopsy? Or at this point, you, you consider only a staging test? Well, first of all, if you go back in history, everything has improved. We know that pathology is greatly improved. Subcapsular nevi are no longer positive nodes. We know that Probably spitz nevis that we find tumors or excuse me cells in a, in a in a cell node are probably not important and we don't do those anymore. Uh, so when you start taking all those po- false positives and, po- and false negatives out, the test becomes better. Throw in better uh, better understanding of how to do it. Uh, better technetium ninety nine injections, which is the radio labeling isotopes that we do for lymph lymphocentigraphy and lymphatic mapping. Every aspect is improved. So whereas years ago people could argue, well, it's not a great test. It's not. Well, it was true. It was. It wasn't that good at the beginning. But it took, you know, it takes persistence to to see the good from the bad. And I think that's what we, what's happened over the over time. I think there there's one where it's clearly helpful from a therapeutic standpoint, and there's one that is a questionable therapeutic standpoint. So I'll tell you about the 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 questionable first. So if you look at MSLT two. Uh, we know that the patients that had a completion lymphadenectomy did not have a better overall survival. Now, there were some subsets that were controversial. One subset was above the clavicles and the head and neck. If you look at the data, the patients that got neck dissections as a result of the cell no biopsy being positive almost did better than those who didn't. Why they didn't? It, they were underrepresented. We know about 25% of all melanomas are in the head and neck, and yet only 11% were in that trial. And the p-value was 0.07. Had the end been larger and that p-value would have been 0.049, we would, we, MSLT2 would be different today, at least for head and neck melanoma. There are other issues too, because if you didn't get a cell biopsy, you're supposed to follow these patients with ultrasound. Head and neck is very notoriously difficult to do that. And the question is, where in the head and neck are you going to do ultrasound? You know, sometimes it's easily bilateral, prodded, level five, level one, all these areas of the head and neck becomes a problem. But what's interesting, though, 
is if you look at the data for patients who had significant nodal involvement, the, the curves, whether you had uh, overall of completion lymphadenectomy or not, were right on top of each other. There was no difference even visually. And what that told a lot of us, which is what a lot of people feel, is that, well, the cat's out of the bag. You're, you're, you got three millimeters of disease in the node. It's basically systemic disease, which is great because we have immunotherapy and target therapy, which goes all over the body. However, if you look at the patients with minimal disease, there was a little bit of a difference in those curves, not enough to be statistically different. And there's always been, again, this is the controversial part. There has been this thought that if, if I take a node out and there's literally one cancer cell, did I basically get rid of whatever was mastag before it became a bigger problem? And it, it is possible, but there's no way of proving it right now. Uh, there's not an appetite to make a trial large enough to do it, uh, but that in early melanoma with a positive node with very early, early mastag disease, there may be a therapeutic benefit. It's hard to prove that. Where there is clearly a benefit is the fact that the, pro the cell node being positive now upstages you to stage three, where there's a plethora of, of therapeutic options, which do absolutely improve survival. So for example, I have a patient who is 1.1 millimeter unulcerated melanoma, and I decide not to do a cell no biopsy because, you know, I don't know, they're 70 years old and, I, and the family's not interested and I wasn't that... I'm not saying that would have been my attitude, but if someone had that attitude and, and maybe they're in a place where someone's not comfortable doing cell no biopsy and they don't get one. Now they're a stage 1B, right? But they meet criteria for cell no biopsy. NCCN guidelines, ASCO, SSO guidelines, and so on. Now that same patient in a different universe goes and has a cell no biopsy. And it turns out that, no, that three of the nodes were positive. Now let's say they're stage 3B. So in one universe, this patient really is a stage 3B, gets sent home as a stage 1B, go back to your dermatologist, which is one of my issues with, you know, how do we divvy up post-melanoma care uh, follow-up? You know, many dermatologists are excellent at what they do, but, but they're busy people, and they're not necessarily trained to look for brain metastasis and lung metastasis, but if they're a stage 1B, that may very well be what happens. Take the other person who's now a stage 3B, they're going to an oncologist. They're, besides, they're seeing a surgeon in addition. They're also um, going to now be good candidates for adjuvant therapy. They're going to get on an imaging regimen, and they're going to have a lot of hands on that patient. And you might ask, well, maybe they, they don't, you know, there's been some data to say there's no difference in the outcome. Well, that may be because not just because the one that didn't get the cell, if you don't get a cell no biopsy, if you do, it may be because the one that didn't get a cell no biopsy is going to do poorly. On, you know, there's going to be a group of those, and the ones who did and were positive, some of them will do well because now we get to treat them appropriately. Does that make sense? So they balance, and when you look at the two groups together, you may not see large differences across them because the, the one Bs may include of those who didn't get cell no, those who really are cell no biopsy negative, but some that do cell no biopsy positive, that thus that makes their mean worse than if they would all be sentinel no biopsy negative. And then the ones that were all positive, the three Bs for instance, yeah, it's a worse prognosis, but we're following them more closely, we're giving them therapy, reducing their risk, and now the two groups don't look that differently. But I think most patients would want to not wait till the, they don't want to take the chance they may have a positive cell node and let that ride, become a stage four patient, and then be treated. 
And I think that's the big thing that most patients want to, when I talk to most patients, they want to know. They don't want to know that they have a ticking time bomb potentially in their underarm or their groin. And that's what the cell no biopsy does. Honestly, a cell no biopsy for most patients has very little morbidity. I've never seen long-term lymphedema in any patients. Of course, occasionally of a complication. You can live without those one or two or three nodes. Patients are usually jump back in a week or two from the, any surgical pain or, or swelling. And so I think it's, it's a small ask to get a lot of information that could potentially change your outcome. Does, does that make sense? There, there's one other interesting consideration when we talk about um, probably more the completion lymphadenectomy, and that's to, to uh, appreciate that even in recent history, the majority of the trials that we base the approval for our immunotherapy and our small molecule inhibitors on, those patients had a completion lymphadenectomy. Now, we have MSLT2, we have the German cooperative group, which didn't highlight a survival benefit to simply doing the completion lymphadenectomy. But do you, do you think that, what is the role of the completion lymphadenectomy that was done in the trials for systemic therapy? Well, you're preaching to the choir because I've been, work, I've been trying to develop a trial to ask that very question. MSLT2 and DCOG, besides the head-neck issue, which is another issue because DCOG, the German trial, didn't even include head-neck patients. It was underrepresented in MSLT2, and we have no information about site on any of the adjuvant trials. Regardless of that, DCOG and MSLT2 did not include any of the modern adjuvant therapies. And all the modern adjuvant therapy trials, as you said, required completion lymphadenectomy. And they were all published within 12 months of each other. So people have put their mind's eye together and say, oh, you don't need a completion lymphadenectomy. But you're right, we don't know. We don't know if having, for instance, one argument is, well, leaving some nodes behind gives the immune system a little bit of something to work with, or excuse me, when you give me a therapy. On the other hand, there's other argument. Others are argue you want to reduce as much tumor burden as possible before you give immunotherapy because there was a big paper published looking at tumor uh, burden volume and outcome of immunotherapy showing that less uh, out, less burden, less uh, better outcome. So it's a great question. Unfortunately, it may never get answered. I'm still trying, you know, fighting the fight. But in, in the current era, most would say if you're going to give adjuvant therapy, don't do the completion lymphectomy. Completion lymphectomy, certainly below the clavicles. That, that's the general attitude and thought process. So clearly we, we, we've come a long way, but we have a lot of, of uh, questions that remain to be answered for, for you, Brian, and, and the rest of those dedicated to melanoma. Um, a lot of what we discussed today was actually highlighted in our recent um, review article that was published in Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in August of 2018 uh, called A Clinical Update for Melanoma Management um, for those who prefer to, to pair their podcast with some notes. Brian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Um, again, the article I just mentioned will be in the Mose College Reference Library. I also encourage our listeners to Visit the NCCN website, which um, with login has all of the guidelines available for your review. Um, for our listeners more interested in the surgical resection of melanoma and particularly the role of Mohs surgery, I encourage you to tune into episode five from uh, a year ago with Chris Miller from the University of Pennsylvania. 
Um, please continue to share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Uh, let us know how we're doing. Who you'd like to have on the show, you can contact us at info at mosecollege.org. Uh, in terms of housekeeping, abstract submissions for the annual meeting are due on January 6th. With that, I thank you all, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mose Surgery.